Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Sarah Pollock, and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today... Will Germany's devastating floods wake Europeans up to the reality of climate change? Last week, as parts of Central Europe were ravaged by widespread flooding, the European Commission launched its Fit for 55 plan to tackle climate change. Europe is now the very first continent that presents a comprehensive architecture to meet our climate ambitions. But the battle lines have already been drawn, with criticism from some member states that the impact of rising fuel costs as a result of this plan will be borne by the poorest and the most vulnerable in society. Fairness is a crucial point here. Fairness within societies and fairness between member states. As the EU unveiled this ambitious climate plan, images and videos were being shared online of German and Belgian citizens battling catastrophic flooding in their hometowns and cities. There's so many people dead. All over the place and they couldn't get any help because it all happened too quick. The message appeared crystal clear. Climate change is real, it's here, and we need to do something to stop it now. And this is the mildest and the most polite that climate change will be to us. And it's only going to get worse. Derek Scally is the Irish Times Berlin correspondent and he's been writing about the impact of these floods in Germany. Derek, can you start by painting a picture of the areas worst affected by this flooding and most importantly, the human cost of this horrific natural disaster? The flooding really hit most hard in southwestern Germany, a state called Rhineland-Palatinate, and uh, this is a small state on the border with Luxembourg, but also in North Rhine-Westphalia, which is just to the north. The village of Schuld in Germany looks like it's been hit by a tsunami. At least six houses have been completely swept away by the river Ahr. After bursting its banks, it devastated everything in its path. And these are quite hilly areas, lots of small rivers, lots of dams, and just really a perfect landscape for for this catastrophic episode. People are saying it's the worst flooding in, in 700 years in some regions. Hundreds of people are still missing. Over the past several days, the floods have cut off entire communities from power and communications. 
And the human stories really are the only way to get get a grasp of it. But also what really got under my skin, one story, a guy, a mayor of a small town in Rhineland-Palatinate, he was on the phone to his mother, 67-year-old mother, and she he was urging her to get out of her house. It was a half-timbered house. And she just said, uh, it's moving, it's moving. And then the line went dead. And the house has disappeared, probably been shattered into small pieces. She has yet to be recovered as far as I know. So... Hearing your mother saying, it's moving, it's moving, and then nothing more, I think that really got under my skin. The other thing I think that really affected me was seeing images of Merkel earlier this week in a pretty tourist town called Bad Münster Eiffel. Now, normally this would be, again, half-timbered houses, cobbled streets, just a tourist magnet. But as she stood there, and behind her was just literally, it looked like a bomb had gone off, and all you could see was a chain of people passing buckets along, and anyone in Germany knows that immediately recalls the post-war era of the Trümmerfrauen, the rubble women who were just requisitioned to carry the massive um, rubble after the Second World War. So in many areas, including Badminster, I feel that this is literally like war damage. That's how serious it is in Germany. Also it's Notstand wie im Zweiten Has Germany faced extreme weather events like this in the recent past? You talked about 700 years in certain areas since we've seen flooding like this. But what about more recently? Now, Germany always has had, I mean, in the years I've lived here, every three to four years is something serious, but it's usually very predictable. It's usually either the Rhine or the Elbe, which runs through Saxony. The, you know, these big rivers usually have large floodplains and there's large plans and the infrastructure is in many cases there to sort of divert the worst of the water, or the, the water excesses. What we saw here was two to three days of solid rain, people getting a year's rain in two days and just extreme water levels in smaller rivers in tributaries of these main rivers, the, the Rhine and the region and the Mosul River. So what seems to be new was it hitting, going beyond the, the places that are used to dealing with this. And, and this has been the debate now. Many people are criticizing where are the warnings. And Angela Merkel at her press conference last Thursday, she said we had information and we had some information, but for many regions, she said, they said to me, it literally just went beyond their imagining that this was possible, that it was possible to be so fast, so brutal and just so tragic. And this flooding was described by Angela Merkel as terrifying. It is erschreckend. And she promised urgent government action on climate change. Do you think this catastrophe has been the climate change wake-up call that maybe Germany needed? It's difficult because Angela Merkel, in her early years, she was uh, the environment minister, the German environment minister at the Bonn Climate Conference in 95. And she was crucial in getting what we now know as the Kyoto Protocol, so binding targets for CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions over the line. And since then, obviously, the climate debate has moved on. And, and Angela Merkel, again, last week at her final press conference with journalists, she said, I've always consistently pushed, but the appetite wasn't always there in other countries. People would say yes, but she's also been quite an effective lobbyist for you know German industry, in particular the car industry, when she believed it suited German interests. So her, her record on climate change is it's quite positive. She's boosted renewable energies, you know, in her time in office, 16 years from 10% to 40%. You know, she's moving beyond nuclear power, but she's created new dependency on gas and coal. So it's really quite complicated. Germany's a huge industrial power. So there's always this tension between economic interests and climate change concerns. And she's admitted, look, 
I did quite a bit, I think, but I could have done more. The circumstances, you know, she says, I'm a scientist. I understand the urgency of this, but getting the political majority in Parliament for this to happen and getting people like, you know, the big industry and the big emitters on board in Germany and around Europe is really, really difficult. She claims she's done her best. Climate change activists here, they've said, you know, she always did a little bit too little, a little bit too late. And there are elections coming up this September in Germany. After everything that's happened in the last few weeks with the flooding, how important do you think climate action will be for voters? Well, this is the thing. Her, her hope for would-be successor as Chancellor is Armin Laschet from the Christian Democrats. And he's been under fire because he was caught laughing on camera after a, a very serious event in a, in a flood-hit area. And he has always been represented this tension within the centre-right CDU. You know, how much climate change can Germany as an industrial country afford? He seems very much have come to realise that, you know, you can't win this election after this devastation by making that point. So he seems he came out and he said we have to do everything possible about climate change and we also have to recognise that such extreme weather events are going to become more frequent in the coming years. So he really seems to have come down more firmly on green climate questions than before. Interestingly, the Greens, who would have been you know, hot on his CDU heels as number two in polls, they're actually making very little of this. I think they don't want to be seen to be trying to play politics with people's misery and I think they're just confident that um, this is the wake-up call. This will eventually bring people into the green camp because in Germany as elsewhere um, the green vote is very volatile people say in polls that they want you know more green politics more climate change action but when it actually comes to making sacrifices themselves they don't so it'll be interesting if this is the tipping point in German voters minds coming up what challenges will the EU face in its fight to cut global emissions 
There were particularly dramatic scenes in the town of Pepinster, where you saw floods that were so high they were filling upstairs bedrooms. Several houses collapsed and one collapse was actually caught on camera as a news crew was recording. You could see the lower floors of a house start to collapse under the weight of the water in the background and people start scrambling out of the window in the roof just trying to escape. In the nearby city of Verviate there was uh, quite dramatic images of cars that had been lifted up by the floods and piled up in the town square and then lower downstream Thousands of people had to be evacuated from the city of Liège. Uh, The mayor appealed for basically anyone who could leave the city to do so and for anyone else to move upstairs with water and food because the river Meuse was uh, flowing over. And lower downstream then in the Dutch province of Limburg, uh, many thousands of people had to be evacuated, thousands of them from the city of Maastricht. And you saw scenes of the lower floors of houses filling up cars being swept away. A dike also burst in Meersden, which forced an immediate mass evacuation of people uh, with the town alarm sirens going off. So there was a lot of disruption across the lowlands with this extreme rainfall and flooding. And all those extreme weather events have been happening against the backdrop of the European Commission's Fit for 55 climate package, which was announced earlier this month. Naomi, can you tell us what is this, this Fit for 55 plan? Fit for 55 is the European Commission's package of proposed policies which would achieve the EU climate goals which have been signed into law. 14 proposals, seven commissioners and one big goal. We now have a package that can take us to our goal, which is now illegal. So that's to cut emissions 55% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels and to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 so that the EU as a whole wouldn't emit any more carbon than it takes in. The package includes a whole range of things, but among them the big picture is a a phase-out of the fossil fuel engine and measures to help along the mass electrification of vehicles. That includes things like a massive charging network for Europe. There's also plans for large-scale renovation projects to make buildings more energy efficient, also to preserve forests, boglands, soils, so that they become carbon sinks again, so they lock in carbon instead of releasing it into the atmosphere. And there's also a proposal to put a levy on imports that are made to lower environmental standards outside the EU. And that's to stop businesses in the EU being undercut by offshore production that's being made to lower standards. The revenues of some of that would then be used as a compensation fund for people affected by the transition. And that kind of gives a hint as to some of the difficulties in this package, which is that it's likely to, in the short term, in the transition, raise costs for people to continue what they're doing now. And there are fears of a populist backlash, right, against some of these measures, that if they're going to hurt the pockets of the average citizen, people just won't accept this. How much has this been taken into account by the EU? Very much so. It hangs over the entire package. Political classes in the EU are massively nervous about the prospect for a repeat of something like the Gilets Jaunes or the Yellow Vest movement that we saw in France. Because that began with a change 
of subsidies to diesel fuel and a reduction of the speed limit on country roads. So that precedent has created a lot of nervousness about changing incentives around fossil fuels in a way that causes prices to change for people. At the moment, the EU has a carbon cap and trade system where if you have major factories, for example, they have a certain allowance of carbon that they can emit and then they can sell or buy additional allowances and that puts a price on pollution. There are proposals to extend that into the transport and building industries. Um, That's very controversial because that quickly starts to affect consumer costs and likewise attempts to change the taxation of fuels to basically rebalance the cost of fuels so that the incentives are pointed towards using renewable green energy instead of what they currently are, which is subsidizing fossil fuels. This is where I think the most contentious proposals are because politicians are afraid of a backlash by people who rely on cars, for example, if they try to make changes that will in the short term cause refueling your petrol tank, the cost of that to raise by a few cents, even though the floods this week have shown that the long term costs of climate change are far, far greater than these kind of short term tweaks. The image of entire cars being swept away and destroyed in the floods was a really graphic illustration of, you know, how failure to tackle climate change will ultimately be much more costly than reducing fossil fuel usage now. We also have Lara Marlowe here with us today, who is the Irish Times Paris correspondent. Lara, you covered the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vest protests in France in 2018, which began as fuel tax demonstrations, but evolved into a much wider anti-government movement. Could this EU plan and its announcement prompt similar pushback and protests in France? I don't think so, at least not in the short term. Uh, And the main reason is that Macron has abandoned all thought of carbon taxes uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, And the the carbon tax hurt the poor uh, the most, and they form the bulk of the ranks of of the Gilets Jaunes. Now, if the French government tries to impose measures that hurt people in their pocketbooks or cause them inconvenience, then there will be a backlash. But they are being very, very careful in tiptoeing around it. Naomi mentioned the EU plans, the social fund for the climate. Um, I've read it. It's 72 billion euros. Uh, some people say that's not enough. But you can be sure that whatever the amount of this uh, social fund, the French will claim a very large chunk of it, and they'll probably augment it uh, with government funds. Basically, they they will intend to buy social peace, as, as they always do in France. Naomi, what do you think will be the most challenging aspects of this package for European countries to get on board with? We know that each EU member state has its own personal concerns. This will make it very difficult for this group package to be agreed on, won't it? Yeah, each member state has their own individual national concerns, which are particular to them. In Ireland, it might be agriculture. In Poland, uh, it's coal. Poland is hugely coal reliant and it insists there have to be massive subsidies to compensate them for moving away from that. In Germany, the car industry is a consideration and the people's attachment to having fossil fuel cars. But there's also a lot of non-state actors that are extremely important in this. 
when it comes to regulation like this, the interests that are given the most attention are those with the most lobbying clout. Agriculture industry has an enormous lobbying power in the EU, in the European Parliament. Similarly, fishermen have been very successful in advocacy for themselves. Often, it's not actually those who are set to lose out the most, so much as those who are able to shout the loudest. Even when it comes to um, things like car ownership, the fact that the Gilets Jaunes began over an issue of the cost of fuel and speed limits, the poorest families do not own cars. So they have successfully portrayed themselves as being the left behind and so on. But like with many protest movements that we've seen across the world and kind of political upheavals, it's not always those who are actually the worst off so much as those who have feel that they have comparatively lost a position of privilege or are losing a comparative position of privilege. What we can expect to to see from now on is a frenzied lobbying over this package. Every detail of this is going to be argued over and we're in for a very difficult, I think, process where different industry groups are going to take an enormous interest in this and try to win the, I suppose, most flexible situation for themselves and try to push costs onto others. Lara, a few days ago, an important climate law was passed in France, which bans some short-haul flights within France, requires more vegetarian school meals and curbs wasteful plastic packaging. How do you think this new climate law lives up to expectations? And how does it compare to what the European Commission is planning? The government is trumpeting it, saying it's a big turning point. Uh, But you have to look at the history of the law to see how it's been watered down Uh, In August of 2018, there was a very popular environment minister called Nicolas Hulot, who resigned on the evening television news, and he said he could no longer lie to himself. Je vais prendre pour la première fois la décision la plus difficile de ma vie. Je ne veux plus me mentir. That what he called the strategy of little steps uh, was going nowhere. It was not reducing greenhouse gas emissions enough. His resignation, along with the activism of Greta Thunberg, sparked huge street demonstrations, which ironically coincided with the Gilets Jaunes protest. So you had what they called Gilets Jaunes and Gilets Verts, Yellow Vest and Green Vest, demonstrating on the same Saturdays. Uh, But what happened was because the the Gilets Jaunes were more numerous and also more violent, and there was no violence with the the, uh, climate protesters, so they got all the attention. Macron cancelled the the carbon tax and cancelled the lowering of the speed limit. So Macron, to to kind of pacify the, the climate lobby, as it were, agreed to establish a citizens' convention on the climate. C'est un projet cohérent. And they chose 150 French people at random. They put in hundreds and hundreds of hours of work and they came up with 146 recommendations upon which this law was supposed to be based. But of the 146 recommendations, only 115 made it into the law and they were watered down. I'll give you a few examples. You mentioned domestic flights being banned. The law says if you can make the same journey in a train in less than two and a half hours, you, you, you are not allowed to fly. The, the actual recommendation was less than four hours. So there's quite a big difference there. The law recommended banning advertisements for polluting purchases such as SUVs. They particularly mentioned SUVs. The law says that you can't advertise fossil fuels. Well, nobody advertises fossil fuels anyway. So I think the ambition in, in France is, is 
at least under Macron, is is、uh, faltering. Lara, I want to ask you about the major climate events that France has faced in recent years. Most of us will remember the horrible 2003 heat wave, when between 15,000 and 19,000 people died as a result of the extreme temperatures, and many of them were isolated elderly citizens left to perish in a city deserted for the annual August holiday. On one day alone, a day that's now known as Black Monday, 3,000 Parisians died. What about since then? How much hotter are the summers getting? How much warmer are the winters with the snow melting in the Alps? What kind of problems has France been facing in this regard? It's more or less constant. I mean, even now this summer,、uh, it's around thirty degrees every day. I get up early in the morning and close all the windows and try to keep the cool air inside my apartment. I have to wipe down the cat with a cold cloth, <laughs> you know, with water on a on a cloth, and and so on and so forth. And I'm preparing myself for the the last really really bad heat wave in 2019. It got to 46 degrees. Believe me, that is very very hot. That was near Montpellier. It was 42.6 degrees in Paris. Now these temperatures are much higher than the 2003 heat wave,、uh, but far fewer people died. About 1,500 people died in in 2019, and in a, in another heat wave in 2018. So it's happening almost every year.、Um, the other really serious extreme weather is flooding, storm, violent storms, and flooding. That's especially on the Mediterranean coast. 2019, there were seven people killed in flash floods in December. October 2015, I remember because I wrote about it at the time. Seven people died in flooding in Mondelieu, that's just above Caen. There was a hurricane in 2010 that killed 53 people. So you know the list goes on and on.、Uh, there was a report by a German NGO at the end of 2019, which said there were more than 20,000 deaths in France from extreme weather events in the last 20 years, and it ranked France the eighth. Out of 183 countries, in number of fatalities from extreme weather events, that put France in a category with India and Madagascar. Lara, the aim of the Green Deal is to be carbon neutral by 2050, which is less than three decades away. Activists and campaigners across Europe would argue that we're dragging our heels; that 30 years is far too long, and we can see the impact of climate change almost every single day in our lives. Is this the best we can do? France's carbon emissions are decreasing, but it's too slow.、Uh, Greenpeace, for example, says that Macron does the exact opposite of what he says, and I can give you examples of that.、Um, he promised that he would close all coal-fired power plants by 2022, but instead he's extended the life of the, one of the main plants until 2026. Um, he said he would ban all further exploration for fossil fuels.、Uh, he even passed a law to that effect in 2017. But the present permit、uh, runs until 2040,、uh, and several of them have actually been renewed. He promised he would double wind and solar power by 2022.、Um, that hasn't happened.、We're, we won't reach that goal. The only bright spots I can see in France at the moment are bicycles and electric cars. 
Um, the government is paying a 12,000 euro bonus for the purchase of an electric car. Bicycles have increased very dramatically, also because of the pandemic. Um, the government has built 10,000 kilometers of bike paths since uh, 2017. For me, I think I think the big problem is is the long time frame on this. I mean, obviously, you have to plan way ahead. But we have over and over and again, we have goals for 2030, goals for 2040, goals for 2050. And the fact is that the government will be long gone by then. Macron will no longer be in office by then. And I think it's very, very easy for these politicians to say, oh, yes, we'll, we, we'll aim for this in 2030 or 2040 or 2050. And it doesn't really commit anyone to anything um, because they'll be voted out of office or retire or, or whatever. And it will be the next generation of politicians that will have to deal with it. I think they need to set much shorter term goals and, and stick to them. Naomi, when the EU Green Deal was announced in 2019, Ursula von der Leyen called it Europe's man on the moon moment, saying it was a time to act now. But how are we doing in terms of an actual timeline? How equipped are we to deal with something of this scale? Clearly, the time scale is really, really tight. We've got nine years uh, to make that cut of 55% compared to 1990 levels. So that means that changes need to come into place quickly. A lot of this has to do with member state implementation. So you can set a goal, you can set a policy, but it doesn't mean anything unless it's actually implemented and implemented strictly. And what member states and different industries have tend to do is to push for flexibility, to push for more time so that they can adapt and essentially hope that someone else makes the changes. What has changed, though, is that now no one is arguing that climate change isn't happening or that carbon shouldn't be cut. There isn't really a political debate about it. The consensus is that urgent action is needed now to tackle climate change. The disagreement lies over what policies to do to achieve that. So that is a major shift. We've also seen green political parties gaining increasing clout and increasing power. That was noticeable in the last European elections. The new European Parliament was greener. Also, there's a lot of money that's about to be released into this because the European Commission has pioneered a massive recovery and stimulus plan, which amounts to some 750 billion euro in grants and loans for EU member states that are aimed to counteract the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. All of that money, all EU spending from now on, has to follow the principle of doing no ecological harm. About a third of it has to be spent on green initiatives, so initiatives to green the economy. So there is real cash behind these proposals. What will really count now is the ambitions of governments and I think the bravery of politicians. How brave are politicians actually willing to lead on this? Are they actually willing to say, this is difficult, but it's something that we have to do? Thanks very much, Lara. Thanks very much, Naomi, for your time. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Soka. That's all for today. In the News will be back on Wednesday. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.